Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. If you've been looking for a place to live in this town, we feel your pain. Housing is hard to come by, period, let alone housing that's affordable. As people continue to move to Nashville in droves, there seems to be no end in sight when it comes to the skyrocketing cost of living here. And that goes for any kind of housing. But what about affordable housing? What even counts as affordable housing these days? How much of it is out there for those of us who really need it? That's coming up later this hour, so tweet us your questions about affordable housing at This Is Nashville. But first, it's Thursday, so you know what that means. Yes, it is time for At Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. We are encouraging you to literally add us on Twitter at This Is Nashville, on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon is here with us as always. Hey, Anna, how's it going? Hey, Khalil. It's going pretty good. And it's always good to be back in the studio with you. Oh, it's such a fantastic time. I really enjoy and look forward to Thursdays. So on Monday, we had an episode about sidewalks, our, or really the lack of sidewalks in this town. We asked our listeners to send us in their questions and concerns before the show. And we got so many that we couldn't even get to all of them. I mean, we have a lot of smart and informed listeners. So Mm -hmm. personally, I was not surprised at all. The smartest listeners. We got one response from a listener named Terry, who has a new home being built in Inglewood, which is just one of the many neighborhoods where there are very few sidewalks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's what she wrote. Quote, our home builder advised us we will be paying Metro sidewalk assessment fee, more than $17,000 based on road frontage. Yet there's no plan to build the sidewalks on our street. We questioned the application of this fee for homeowners doing a new build. Perhaps it was only meant for developers. That's a lot of fee. That lot of fee really dug into our home budget. Mm-hmm. So what is this assessment fee? So I'm going to take you back in recent city history. Okay. Um, so in 2017, the Metro Council approved an ordinance that requires property owners, so not just developers, to pay to build their own sidewalks or contribute to the city's sidewalk fund before getting a building permit. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so two local property owners sued the city um, around that time. They claimed that the ordinance was unfair because the city should be using taxpayer dollars to pay for infrastructure and that the city, by doing this, was holding building permits hostage. Hmm. A federal judge sided with Metro this past December in that lawsuit. But now the original property owners are appealing the ruling. So unless the court says otherwise, property owners have to pay for sidewalks. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a bump in the road when it comes to funding much needed sidewalks. Okay. Now, I know that's not the only issue when it comes to sidewalks, right? Oh, of course not. (laughs) Um, Five Points resident Daniel tweeted at us on Monday to say, quote, We have fairly good sidewalks. However, practically every construction site closes the sidewalks. New York City can build a 100-story tower on 57th Street and keep sidewalks open. Surely Nashville can too for our low and mid-rise projects. I believe Nashville can take that that on. And also, you know, as a taxpayer, I myself 
love sidewalks. I don't mind my taxpayer dollars going to building more sidewalks in the city. So another complicated topic we touched on this week was adoption. We really do like to lean into difficult topics here, huh? Yeah, for the last couple of weeks, we've been really steering into that. Um, But so adoption has obviously entered the chat, so to speak, uh, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And one of our listeners, Trisha, excuse me, filled out our community survey a few days after the ruling, suggesting that we would cover adoption. By the way, that survey lives on our landing page at thisisnashville.org. It's super easy to fill out. We really do take your input to heart. Trisha's response is a part of the reason why we did the show on adoption yesterday. So, yeah, listeners can fill it out. And we, of course, read the responses. And, you know, it gives us a chance. So we want to hear what you guys want us to cover. So anyways, here's what Trisha wrote to us. Uh, Quote, the news of late is all about Roe v. Wade, and everyone keeps banding about the option of adoption. They toss it around like it's accessible to everybody. I have a family member currently adopting. She has been told her adoption could cost upwards of $90,000 with a minimum of $40,000. She doesn't have that kind of money. So we are fundraising to make her dream come true. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. So I wanted to, you know, fact check those numbers and the data really backs up Trisha's comment. According to the Federal Children's Bureau, adoptions through an agency can run between $25,000 to $6,000. And that's a conservative estimate. Hmm. Well, I'm betting we got a lot of tweets yesterday. Did you hear from anyone about their experience with adoption? Yes. A listener who goes by... Miss Malazuski on Twitter wrote to us saying, I have also been denied working with adoption organizations because my husband and I do not practice Christianity. Many agencies here will not work with non-Christian families. So there's actually been some controversy around that um, in Tennessee. Uh, I don't know if everyone remembers, but faith-based or adoption agencies can refuse to work with families because of their religion. It was something that Governor Bill Lee signed into law back in 2020. Hmm. So recently, a Jewish couple from Knoxville sued the state over that law because they were trying to adopt. Uh, But the Associated Press reported earlier this month that the state dismissed the lawsuit. So we got some feedback by email about our episode yesterday. We only scratched the surface with this first episode on adoption. One listener wrote in to ask us to lean in more to the barriers people who are looking for to adopt face. It's like for same-sex couples and single people, and of course, the financial barriers, which you mentioned a minute ago, Anna. Mm -hmm. Because of this feedback, we are working on another episode on adoption, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, we've already gotten so many leads to pursue for that show, but you know, keep your comments coming. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you soon. Of course, and our listeners know where to find me online. Don't don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram. Let's keep the comments coming and fill out that quick survey at thisisnashville.org. It is super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll dive into the nuts and bolts of affordable housing, what it is, and who gets to decide. Are you looking for affordable housing? We want to hear about your search. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. A 
I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. It has been almost a year since I moved to town. Man, time flies. It seems like everyone I meet has something to say about housing, whether they're looking for a place themselves or not. The cost of living here is high. As a result, a lot of folks are being displaced. And affordable housing? It's hard to come by. So what counts as affordable housing these days anyway? My next guests are here to help answer that. Berkeley Allen is a Metro Council member at large, and James Frazier is Director of Research at the Preservation of Affordable Housing. Welcome to you both. Council Member Allen, let's start with you. What is affordable housing? Council Member Allen, what is affordable housing? Great, great question. I'm okay. uh, sorry. Took me a minute to unmute there. That's all right. There's it happens an, to me all the time. <laughs> doesn't it, though? There is an official definition for affordable housing that says no one should spend more than 30 percent of their income on housing. And sometimes that includes utilities. Um, and then there's an official definition of uh, what's called the area median income for uh, specific areas. Nashville's area median income unfortunately, is based on kind of a large regional area, which kind of skews it because that includes uh, Franklin County. So that says theoretically the median income of people, right, the the midpoint is about $66,000. So you should only be spending a third of that on your income. And that works out to something like $1,800 a month now for rent for for a a single person. Okay. which is pretty expensive, but that's the official definition of affordable housing. And then you talk about um, being at 80% of that income or 60 or 50 or 30. And those are very specific definitions that are used to qualify for um, subsidized housing, which is a a way to enable people who don't have the income they need uh, to still be able to find housing. Okay. So it's a moving definition, whatever 30% of your income is. James, what would that look like for you? Well, uh, as a professor, that would look like about between thirty to forty-five thousand dollars, depending on the year. Uh, but it's it's. I want to make the point though that that is very you know socially constructed. The thirty percent kind of rule that's in place. I really believe that given all the other dynamics that people face with expenses and childcare and all that type of thing, food security, that 30% is a lot to Mm. pay for housing out of one's paycheck every month. I'm curious, do you think it's that that's a fair system to base things off of? Well, I think that's a great question, Khalil, because my point is that it is a, a housing system. And we've seen in Nashville that even all the good intentions that uh, you know, people I've worked with in the nonprofit, for-profit, and in the government sector, like Berkeley Allen, uh, Council Person Allen, uh, it's a systematic change that needs to take place. It, it's not about pointing fingers at who's not doing their job. It's literally the system is not operating in a way that helps people that are lower, even to moderate income. And the New York Times had a story today that showed that even very solidly middle-income people 
around the country are feeling what low-income people have felt for quite a while, and that is the inability to purchase a home. And the conversations I've had with people, a lot of folks in town and across the country are feeling the pinch. But something else I noticed, people often conflate affordable housing with low-income or subsidized housing. James, what sets those apart? Well, I think affordable housing is a term that, as Council Person Allen referred to, is usually defined by federal guidelines, uh, and that is you know, based on a family's income or an individual's income. I think the better term to use is accessible housing, and that's going to be different for a variety of populations, not only based on income, but based on different needs that we have as humans to thrive. And so when we think about housing, I think that like the bottom line is we need to think about how can we build a system of providing spaces for people to reside in communities that are healthy and healthy communities can be low income, middle income, high income, but we do need to figure out why can we not address affordable or accessible housing in a more scaled manner that is required if we're going to you know, really create a Nashville for everyone. I want to get into some of these definitions in terms so we can be super clear. You know, what is workforce housing, Berkeley? So again, an official definition of that puts it at 80 to 120% AMI. I mean, that's that's the official definition, but the, the actual definition is, you know, where where is there housing that the people who drive our economy and, and make the things happen that we need, which is, you know, everywhere from construction folks to service workers to I mean, and that can even include our creative community. Are there places where they can afford to live? And is there is there a way to to intentionally create spaces if they can't find them? Now, we were talking earlier, James, about the system that needs um, a total makeover and change. And seeing that there's something of a stigma around affordable housing. Break that down for us. How does that affect folks in affordable housing or in the need of it? How does the stigma really affect them? Well, the stigma operates, I think, in indirect and direct ways. Uh, and I'd like to kind of focus a short comment on the indirect way that it, it kind of shapes what people go through to get housing. And that is it legitimates, for some reason in our society, the notion that you must earn housing, that you must be doing activities in a capitalist society in a manner that makes you deserving of being able to live and thrive. Part of the system change that I believe needs to take place is a switch to a more social view of what housing represents and how much benefit our entire society could have if people are not worried about you know, where their children and where they are going to be sleeping, whether it's gonna be outside in a camp, in their truck, or if they're going to have to deal with a system where the application process for a rental unit kicks them back because of a variety of extra factors now that are being introduced. It's not just income. It's about past behavior, even minor ones in the criminal realm. And so there's a system that I think we can work changing as opposed to just thinking of housing as a as an economic gain for people. How do class and race factor into that? Well, uh, it cannot be overstated that 
you know, what we found during the housing acts uh, that initially formed the ability for people to purchase homes, for example, in 1937 and 1949, systematically in practice and in times in word, excluded particularly any non-white person from being able to access those funds. Now, that wasn't always, you know, like structured legally that way. It was at times, but it's also the ways in which people are pressured into, you know, taking lesser options because they're not being considered by conventional, uh, you know, lenders and conventional developers. So it, it cannot be overstated. And that's why I believe part of the way we address housing is to intersect that very directly with issues of race, with issues of gender too, in the sense of income making, we need to recognize that our past and even present practices disadvantage certain groups of people. And if, you don't, if you're not a part of it, it's hard to see, but I think we have plenty of evidence now to show that it's time to socialize some housing, you know, part of that market in Nashville through a public effort. And if you ask, I'll tell you more about my idea on that. I definitely plan to ask you that, my friend. Now, Kelly Chang is a Nashville resident and former housing navigator with PATH. She told the city council that they need help solving the housing crisis. The people in River Chase right now, even with Korea having the best intentions, with Salvation Army having the best intentions, with PATH having the best intentions, with you all having the best intentions, there is not enough housing in this city. We have people who are 131 on a wait list. They've been on for three years. Section 8, why are we still giving people vouchers when there are no places to live on Section 8 anymore? The Low Barrier Housing Collective, they tried it. The anti-eviction stuff, all of this goes together. Homelessness goes together. Berkeley, what action will the cities take to address this housing crisis? Um, I'm glad you asked. I mean, it is, it's a huge problem. We're not going to solve it overnight, um, but we have been working on it um, for a number of years. And slowly, slowly, we are creating tools that I think will begin to chip away with it, hopefully at an accelerating pace. So we, we've already got the Barnes Fund, which creates, at this point now, we're up to 1,200 units a year. It started, you know, at maybe a handful of units a year. And MDHA is now going through an envision process um, at their public housing um, processes uh, areas um, that are, in addition to preserving the, the very low income units that they have, which we have a huge need for, they're including in a mixed income model, both workforce and market rate in there. So they're adding in um, reasonably priced housing um, while updating some badly, um, badly needed uh, properties that have been neglected uh, just because of lack of federal funding for that. So that's a, that's a program that is creating some new housing. And we've also created a tool called a community land trust, um, which will, it lets uh, the a trust for, for Metro own the land uh, and provide a way for a, for a homeowner to get into property much less expensively, provides financial support, and then preserves that affordability even when they are able to move on to something else by um, working out a deal with the owner to not get a windfall on it, which is what so much of, of we see. And there's also a federal program that's administered through the state called low-income housing tax credits that enables um, even for-profit owners to lower their cost of building so that they can 
lower the rent for um, income qualified tenants. And the council worked really hard to create a tool called inclusionary zoning that would simply say every project that gets built needs to add 10% of their units that will be set aside for um, for, for tenants who, who need to pay less. And that was unfortunately preempted by the state, um, although it still sits there. And if we can ever get the state to realize what an important tool this is statewide, hopefully that we can put that one to use. And then there are a couple of smaller ones. We've got a housing and housing incentive pilot program that literally makes a landlord whole and says, you can still make this ridiculous market rate that, that seems to be going in Nashville. Um, and the city will subsidize that for uh, tenants who qualify. And then finally, we just created a tool called a mixed income pilot, which is a tax abatement for for-profit builders who will um, set aside a certain number of their units for, um, for a lower income rent being paid for qualified tenants. Um, and for that, they know that they can bank on getting a, a property tax break for the same number of years that the um, the, um, the properties stay affordable. And then we're looking now at what Metro land is out there that we might be able to use in concert, either with for-profit or nonprofit builders um, that would be, you know, be willing to make use of other tools and build housing on Metro land that could be rented at lower cost. So those are some of the tools that we have put in place over the past couple of years that, as I said, they haven't solved the problem, but they're, um, we're working hard at chipping away at it. And then finally, the um, the mayor has appointed a task group that made um, some very specific recommendations. And a lot of those have been put into place, like creating a new Department of Housing, which is I think is really going to accelerate um, the creation of new tools for us. And um, that group is also working. I mean, the, the new housing division is putting together a process to help figure out how we can use some of the American Rescue Plan funds um, to create some long-term uh, sustainable, either either social impact funds or um, just maybe co-ops. And I think Dr. Fraser may talk some more about that in a minute, um, that may be able to, to generate their own income so that they can continue to create stuff. So uh, it's, it's like it's, all these uh, tools though, but why? Yeah, do, and why haven't we a, solved the problem? Exactly, why <laughs> haven't we solved this problem? That is such an excellent question. Uh, it is, it's a slow process. And as I've said, these these have all kind of come online sort of one at a time since beginning in 20, um, I think 14 is when the Barnes Fund was was founded. So it's, I mean, there is there is an upward trend, but we just have so far to go. We're just going to have to continue to add tools to that. Like um, I, and, I, I understand it's a slow process, but, you know, not to quote Game of Thrones, but winter is coming and there's people who are going to need homes coming up soon. I hope there's some way that we can find ways to expedite this process. And how many of these units will be created this year? I think with our goal is to create 5,000 a year. I mean, right now we know the, the Barnes Fund can create about 1,200 a year. MDHA through their Envision process is creating a handful of hundreds through the low-income housing tax cut project. That tends to be several hundreds per year. So we're not to that 5,000 units per year goal yet, but we're we're closer to it than we've ever been. And we'll we'll just have to keep getting, you know, closer and closer to that until we're finally doing it. I don't think it's happened before this winter, though, unfortunately. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kali Alekalona. We're talking about affordable housing with Metro Council member Berkeley Allen and James Frazier, Director of Research at the Preservation of Affordable Housing. Please tweet us your questions about affordable housing at this 
is Nashville. Now, you know, what role do private entities really have in solving this problem? James? Well, I really appreciated council persons, Alan Berkeley's comments. And I really, it made me think of Audre Lorde and the quote, we cannot, you know, dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly about race, but it's also about economics. And I would say that working closely with the council for many years, doing the actual report for the planning department on the inclusionary zoning, you know, legislation that we tried to get put forth, as well as other activities, I only see, you know, one path forward in a kind of orientation. And that is to really look at the whole housing issue as a system. And if we realize that affordable housing, builders, developers, you know, regardless of the policies, if we pander to, and I have a lot of developer friends in Nashville, they're probably gonna cringe when I say this again, but if it, we cannot be relying on them, that's not their job. Now they can make money off of building the housing. They can make money off of managing some of the kind of, you know, site development, but the city needs to put a large bond issue up front to land bank at least 20% of the housing market in the city to hold it affordable for any income group in perpetuity. That does not mean public housing, because I know that has a stigma of concentrated poverty, which personally I don't think is the problem. The problem is that people continue to face a system where regardless of what they do, they know that they will never cross that barrier. As one of the speakers mentioned before, uh, if you're on the Section 8 list, you might as well forget it. I mean, you will never get a unit almost. In a city with the housing market or submarkets like Nashville, you do not have the private sector invested in taking Section 8 vouchers the way you would if we were not a hot housing market. We need to socialize some of this by having the city buy property in mass and then having the nonprofits that already exist and have proven their worth in the housing field. Uh, and there are many of them. I, I would call out to Eddie Latimer at you know, the housing affordability group there and Urban Housing Solutions and all these groups that have been around for a while. We need to manage a large portfolio of housing that is affordable in perpetuity, that is not based upon how much money can be made off of it and it, the upkeep well, there's a social cost to not having people housed, and we see that every day. Mm -hmm. So again, we need to think about how we consider playing taxpayer money as well as doing other things to generate revenue streams to have a social housing system. Mm -hmm. I cannot see how we can possibly build enough housing without entering that realm of social and if we don't consider it social, then we're always going to be trying to do things market-based that are not going to work. And they particularly do not work for people that historically and currently have experienced vast discrimination. Berkeley, what's your response to that? I think, uh, I think you know, you got the smartest person <laughs> on housing on this show, and I'm, I'm grateful to have his input. And, and we've heard some... Um, 
some great tools like there's something called a PREC, which is to help me with this permanent real estate cooperatives, I think that would follow well in that model. And there are other countries that do this really well where they, I mean, you know, it's, it's not something that is built uh, for someone to make a profit on. It's, it's something that's built for people to live in. So we've got other models that we can look at that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And I am hopeful that this funding through the American Rescue Plan can be the you know, the starting place for that. And then we can then set it up so that it will perpetuate itself and grow and accelerate. So I, I think there's there's no question the market is not going to solve this problem. And the the spectrum of tools that we create, I think, goes absolutely all the way to to social solutions as well. So I would I would um, I would agree with with uh, James on that. So Berkeley, wholeheartedly. you mentioned that the state plays a role here. How are we working with other counties to remove the state as a barrier to our local initiatives? Ooh, that is that is such a good question on everything. We have a good partnership with the other large cities, but the the four big cities in Nashville tend to often be at odds with the rural counties, and that's the work that we need to do. And I think we're just now kind of beginning to realize that that that's going to be the solution. The only way that we have come up with the solution is to to find where the common ground is with the rural counties on solving some of these issues, and there. Their housing issues, I guess, just manifest themselves in different enough ways that right now they don't they don't seem to feel like the problems we're having are the problems they're having and the solutions that we're we're putting forth are relevant to them. But we, we've got to get past that and, and create some cooperation here because there's some great tools that other other counties and other states are using that are not accessible to us right now. Mm-hmm. I feel like an honest pitch to get people to move here is Nashville. It's a great place to live if you can afford it. And yeah. government and officials have been commissioning studies on the issue of affordability, but very little action has come out of them. Really quick, really briefly, James, what will Nashville's identity be if we continue on this current trajectory? I really think that the city is going to turn into a place where already is kind of a playground for tourists above the citizens that live in the city. That's not necessarily bad all the time. But what we're going to find is that people are going to, you know, decide, you know, I need to find a job elsewhere. I'm not willing to deal with that stress, the hassle, and it's not going to be an open community. It's going to lose like what makes Nashville quirky and diverse. I mean, I know that to some people that may have been lost 10 years ago, but I think that it's not too late if we really think of it in a systems way. We must really consider very social solutions. And there's a precedent in rural areas for this, by the way. I mean, the co-ops that exist in the United States were majorly in rural areas Mm. around farms, electricity, utilities, uh, food. We could bring in people from rural areas and they could show Nashville how they have been successful over the last hundred years with co-ops of different sorts and build a community that supports people it is not our urban rural divide. It doesn't have to be, but I agree with Berkeley rural folks really haven't been asked a whole lot. So if their knowledge isn't valued in their co-op experience, they might not understand why a city like Nashville would like to have something like that. I think it could be a game changer to get those kind of folks together talking that we are on a single trajectory here. We are, our futures are combined. 
And they have knowledge that really would benefit urban life and urban dwellers. That's how we bridge these divides. It reminds me of the housing tales of New York City, Los Angeles, and the Bay Area. Hopefully, we can avoid that. I want to thank Councilmember Berkeley Allen and James Frazier from the Preservation of Affordable Housing. Thanks to you both for coming on to the show today, and thanks for this information. We have to take a quick break. When we return, we'll hear from a few tenants themselves about their experiences. Are you searching for housing? What does affordable mean to you? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kelowna, and this is Nashville. I, like thousands of others, Nashvilleans, am a renter. I love my place. It's pretty cool. Will my rent go up when it's time to renew my lease? I don't know. If it does, will I stay? These are the questions many renters in our city have faced in the past few years. In turn, landlords had to figure out if they have to raise rents on their tenants. Our affordable housing dilemma affects tenants and landlords alike. My next guests are current renters in Nashville. Donna Clay and Efrat Deem, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, Donna, thank you, thank you. Donna, let me start with you. You're currently renting in Berkshire, which is in East. But I understand that there's some uncertainty with your living situation. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, yes. Well, come next year in uh, September, they're supposed to be tearing them down. And there's going to be uh, some new property there, a uh, new apartments there. And they were supposed to see if HUD would transfer the vouchers to the new location, which is in Madison. How does that make you feel? Uh, kind of, mm, I really don't want to because I'm like, Five minutes from my job, I can I walk to work every day. Mm-hmm. I'm at Inglewood Elementary. Um, I work there, and I'm just five minutes away from my job. But if I move to Madison, it's gonna make my commute harder because I don't own, I don't have a vehicle, so I have to walk to Gallatin Road because no bus comes up in there. If it do, I don't know what time it runs, and so now I have to worry about how I'm gonna get to work on time. Have you talked? Have what have your neighbors? said about this as the news of the buildings being torn down approached? Uh, it, it's mostly not the young people over there. It's mostly the elderly people, the ones who own fixed income. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they devastated because they don't even know what's going to happen to them. And can they afford to live somewhere else if the voucher doesn't go through? I mean, what's going to happen to those senior people that live over there? And there's quite a bit in one bedrooms that you know, they don't know what to do. I mean, they ask me questions like, you know, I talked to a couple of them, but like I told them, I don't know neither because we just up in the air about everything. Nobody has told us anything. Do you feel like the city is taking your situation seriously? Absolutely not. Because first of all, when they knew this was going to happen, the councilman woman should have came forth way before this hit the fan to let everybody know in that neighborhood. And I can understand they don't want subsidized around all those $300,000 or $400,000 homes. I get that. But make something affordable for the people to stay in the community that makes the community. And that's not happening right now. 
Now, Efrat, you're pretty new to town and you're here for school. I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate. It's hard to keep up with rent when you're studying full time. What's what's your experience with affordable housing? What has it been like since you moved here a year ago? Uh, yeah, so we moved uh, exactly a year ago uh, to Nashville uh, from out of the U.S. And we love our house, but unfortunately, we will have to live it uh, after the lease will end. Uh, just because the rent raised uh, so much that we can't afford it anymore. So we are looking for a new place now. How much did your rent go up? Uh, about 10%, something like this. Okay, and that's got to be really tough. Now, you moved here from Tel Aviv, right? Yes. Is that an affordable place to live? Definitely not. Hmm. <laughs> um, when I lived there, um, we had a rare apartment which was very affordable um and i think the case in israel is like in tel aviv specifically is also um not good with housing anymore i know that all of my friends get like very high um uh like rent right now and everything is rising in like like crazy right now um so it's similar to here um but we we could afford it and i was not in school i earned more than what I'm earning now. So it, it was more affordable then than now for me. So did you us. did you expect any type of reprieve from the expensive housing when you came to Nashville? I like we had a few options and we chose Nashville because it's supposed to be affordable mm. than other places. Um, so we really hoped it's going to be something we can live for and um, like afford ourselves and and probably it's still more affordable than like big cities in the u.s but i feel like it's becoming less and less and um there is no like the, the salary for a graduate student is not a lot so it's not it's not as affordable as i hope to you know, in our last segment, our guests helped us to find affordable housing. Housing that is technically affordable, according to the definition, is 30% of your income. I'd love for each of you to share what that would look like for you based on your current income. What would that make your rent? Donna? Well, 30% of my income is $366.20 that goes that 30%. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're looking at what you make, when they're looking at, see, that's why I'm confused about the housing. Because if they're going on your income, it's not your net, it's your gross. But your net don't match that. So you really don't have enough in your net to even pay what they want you to pay. Mm-hmm. Efrat. Exactly. Um, if I will have to call it, 30% will be like uh, a yearly of uh, 10000 I'm earning Three, like 30,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but my husband is also working. So uh, we can afford ourselves uh, like 2,200. This is what we put for ourselves um, that we can afford. Um, but also we, we are trying, like when you calculate it with having a vehicle so you can get to work and so it's becoming more, like more things that you need to. Yeah. To take into account. Living expenses that James alluded to earlier in the show. I'd like to introduce my next guest, Lisa Smith. Welcome to This is Nashville. Now, Lisa, you are a former landlord, right? Yes. 
Yes, that's true. Tell me, who were some of the people you rented to? Um, and thank you for having me. And I've been taking, I've got two pages of notes and just, I'm sitting hmm. here with my brain blowing up. Um, I rented predominantly to uh, folks with who had a voucher. Um, I had a um, couple of pieces of rental property and I'm so mad. I really wished I still had some rental property for some of the folks who are on here now. Um, um, I, like I said, I, I rented to section eight. And I went, I took my time. Um, I went through a pretty, it was what I call tedious, but I'm a note taker and a list maker. Um, so I, what I did was uh, when I put the property on, first of all, when I put the property online, uh, in six hours, I had probably 40 phone calls wow. and email. Wow. And then within two weeks, I had about 75 total uh, of emails. So from that, I tried to reply to every one of them. Um, from those that I got replies, I did, you know, ask them if they would be willing to uh, do a background and a credit check. And of course, I think they have to with their voucher. But I sent out probably twenty links, and I paid for it because it, it was it cost money to do the the because I had a landlord online system that I used to do background checks and do. Um, um, uh, income checks. Mm -hmm. So they did not pay. Um, I did a, um, I didn't do a application fee. I paid for the, the, the credit check and the background check. And I mean, literally the, the bottom line is nobody had over a five fifty. That, that, I mean, and that's what I expected, which was no problem mm -hmm. uh, because I knew what I, I knew what I was facing. So I, I did that. I, I selected 10 people to talk to I talked to them and when it and picked from the la the top three and picked a family out of those top three. Now, and had family. oh, go ahead. I'm how, sorry. How was that different than if you rented to a person working a higher income job, someone who wasn't on oh, Section Eight? I probably wouldn't have. Um, I probably wouldn't have. I would have de definitely looked at their credit score for sure. And I would have picked the highest credit score um, and then went through the process, the same process of calling uh, references. I did call references um, of calling references for. And that's what I would do now, because um, I have currently have my own town, a, a townhouse that I had considered renting out um, because I'm making some up some newer uh, real estate moves. But um, considering renting it out at uh, a little bit below market, but probably at market rate around 2200 uh, because it's a three-bedroom, three-bath. Um, but I would call references, do the uh, credit check, and do the background check, um, but it, it all takes time. You, you have to take the time to do that and meet people. So, I mean, that, that's kind of what I would add for it. Now, from what I remember in our production documents, Efrat, you were looking for a place that was around 2200 Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right. Well, <laughs> We're still looking. We'll, I will definitely have to make sure that you and Lisa get together if she puts that townhouse up on the market. Now, Donna, you lived in the city for nearly 50 years and you've seen a lot change. When, when, when did you first get a sense that there was an affordable housing problem developing here? <laughs> when I, uh, I guess about five years ago, mm. when I tried to apply for housing, it's so hard because every time they open the site up, you're on a waiting list. 
So what's the purpose of the waiting list? And then every time they open it up, you have to go reapply, update, but then you can't do it because the site won't let you or you're putting in the wrong information. They make it very difficult, even for seniors who want to apply for the senior housing. All of those people are not technical support people. They need help in knowing how to do those. They need to just make it more easier. But I noticed that a while back because it was so hard to find housing. Now, how do you feel about the way city city officials have addressed the problem? They really haven't addressed it. They haven't addressed the problem of people going to be homeless in the next couple of months or years. It has not been addressed. They just keep saying, like, you know, they just said in the previous conversation, they got all these tools, but what are they doing with them? It's like if your car break down, you got the tools to fix it, but you're not going to take the initiative to do, use your tools. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm confused about the things they do. And then when they tell you stuff, they don't, they don't want you to get upset, but they don't want to tell you the truth. I just think it's best if you just tell the people the truth about what's about to happen, why we can't afford to live here. And because I don't make enough, even with the raises Metro give us, I'm still not going to make enough to live comfortable where I'm going to just pay my rent and my utilities not included in what you make, you know, in housing, which is crazy to me because our utilities should be a part of housing. And I'm still not going to have enough money to live, to live in something affordable because I've already been looking to see if I can afford it. Why should I have to go out and get two jobs, work two full-time jobs to live in a city I've been living in all my life? Mm. It makes no sense. Mm. Efrat, tell me, what type of stress has this put on you and your family? Uh, the, the struggle to find a house um, that is affordable and in a place that we can, um, like, that is... We need to be in the city, for example, because we only have one car and we like work in the city. So we need to coordinate it between the two of us. Um, so we have also like specific places that we can um, look for. And it's almost impossible to find houses in these areas. Um, our neighborhood is like out of the window already because it's too expensive. Uh, our current neighborhood that I could walk to school from there and now I won't be able to live here anymore. And we didn't plan on moving. So it's like trying to figure out all over again, how are we going to find a house, which is again, a, like a competition with a lot of other couples who are looking right now. Um, and then like, also like, so, yeah, sorry, I lost my uh, line of thought, but yeah, it's the hard competition. And then it's like trying to understand how you can really manage the day-to-day afterwards, packing, like everything is like a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of stress because most of the houses that we're seeing, we're like, as, like, as the landlord said, it's tons of people are also seeing the same house. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of competition for it. And I can hear the stress that you and both you and Donna are expressing. Now, Lisa, as a landlord, you did a lot to try to offer affordable housing. But what do you what would you like to see developers do to alleviate these pressures? Uh, wow. Um, so I, I do I, as a uh, as a wannabe developer myself, I do understand the desire to want to make money. 
Um, but I did make money when I rented well below market rate. Um, I, it, it's got it has to be a group effort. We no no we can't expect for developers to to do everything on their own, and we can't expect for government government can't do it on their own. Um, and then there's just going to have to be some working together. Um, I heard earlier when uh, the during the first part of the first segment that. One person had to pay seventeen thousand dollars for um, for a sidewalk, uh, and, and that that is ridiculous. I mean, I'm I'm from a small town, and I do have you know small town ideas, and I come from a town where early you know when I was first uh, uh, born or first living there, when I first was aware of developing a building, uh, the city and the develop the developers was they were required to build certain things. They were required to put in streetlights. They weren't required to do sidewalks, but they could pay to do sidewalks. Um, so certain parts of the infrastructure, if you, that that's the cost of, of building. You, you, you purchase the right to this property. Now the right to build and sort of, and I don't mean infringe in a negative way, but you're infringing space on the people who surround you and the, the state government that takes care of the infrastructure. It, it should be expected that you help pay for that. Hey, so I, got, I, just, I have about 30, um, 30 seconds left real quick. Okay. What advice do you have for Donna and a front as they search for new places? 30 seconds. Right. So Donna, um, and I put in the, the text, uh, the texting to contact Kenisa Patterson at vision airs. She helps people to, uh, find either funding or a new home. And then I have a potential name for uh, the young lady from Tel Aviv, um, because I don't want to butcher her name, but uh, that is a potential house, potential home for her to rent. I don't know if the young lady has rented her town home, but I'm happy to connect the two of you. But it, it's rough out there. It's rough. That is Lisa Smith. I want to thank you. I want to thank Donna Clay. And I want to thank Efrat Deem. Thank you all so much for being on the show with us today. And good luck to you all. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're going to take a closer look at that recent oil spill in West Tennessee that the public almost didn't even know about. Tune in. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Tasha A.F. Lemley, and Ambriel Crutchfield. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blake. Special thanks to Ambrio Crutchfield, Jamie Berry, Paulette Coleman, Kate Bowers, Benjamin Wakuder, Mina Shedd, Richard Schaefer, Avi Poster, and Carolyn Nafee. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville and fill out our survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other. <laughs>